Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongings the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> the young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with Difficulty, a rich person uh, enter the kingdom of heaven again. I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of, the, of a needle than a, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is not possible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, yeah, new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers and sisters or fathers and mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Father in heaven, God, help us to humble ourselves as we come to underneath the authority of your word. Um, we ask that you would show up in this, this moment um, through your word, through your presence here, through the Holy Spirit, whatever hardened pieces of our hearts that can just so easily be built up. We just ask that you would lovingly knock those down so we can draw 
near to you, whatever sins that, that we need to confess and bring and trust in your forgiveness, um, whatever successes that we have in, in, in our life that we need to use to glorify you, Jesus, would we just bring all of our life, every little bit, and just bring it underneath your loving authority, Jesus. Um, we thank you so much for opportunities like this, and it's in your name we pray, amen. So we are continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. And we can see, like if you step back and look at Matthew as a whole, there's a main theme that comes out of the book. And that theme is that Jesus is the true authority. He's the greatest king. And it begins to come out in some very powerful and practical ways. So if we even just look over the last chapter that we've been over, last couple of chapters, we can see how, how Jesus has been showing this uh, to his disciples. First, Jesus is king over how we act towards one another. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we radically pursue others when sin threatens our relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. So you have that whole section in Matthew 18 talking what to do when a, when a brother sins against you. And so Jesus, in his good authority, is saying, hey, you need to allow me to be king in these circumstances. And then last week we were looking at even Jesus is king over our marriages and our relationship statuses. And we saw that powerful phrase, don't tear apart what God has brought together. And everything that's written out there, Jesus is saying, I need to be that authority in your life as your God, as your creator, as your savior. So when we understand Jesus is king, and we're going to look at this in this passage today, is he, he, his desire is that his authority would be over our entire life, 100% as king. And that puts us in the role of being kingdom citizens, operating under his rule and authority by faith as his followers. And so the greatest metaphor that, that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Matthew to bring home this concept of being humbly dependent on him as his followers is through children. And so the, the main point out of this passage that we're looking at is really a question. Am I living like a child or am I living like a rich man? Am I living like a child or am I living like a rich man? So let's first look at what living like a child looks like. So in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13, it says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So Jesus already has used kids as this metaphor for his followers. And if you back up into Matthew 18, 3 through 4... Jesus says this, and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in many ways, Jesus has already explained this to his disciples. And in the situation we find in Matthew 19 is that 
Jesus is now on the road to Jerusalem. He's coming to this point of no return in his ministry. He's told his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but that he's going to rise again. And so there's really a tension that's going to keep increasing the closer that Jesus and his disciples get to Jerusalem. And he's been doing the, his ministry that we've seen throughout the whole gospel. He's been healing people. We see, see this at the beginning of chapter 19, most likely teaching them as well. But now we have something else that happens. We have parents, guardians, or relatives, they start bringing kids to Jesus so that he can lay hands on them and pray over them. And this is, this is a beautiful picture for us of Jesus' heart for kids and for the discipleship of kids. And so as a side note, like when we see this, one, it should be an encouragement for us as a church that kids are valuable to Jesus and should be valuable to us and how we teach and instruct and point them to Jesus. But when, when he rebukes them, he first starts off by saying, let the little children come to me, just on a very practical note, like, hey, stop it. Like, let them come to me. I'm not too busy for these kids. But then he references how children are this picture for what it means to follow them. So he says, not only don't hinder them, but then he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And that's setting us up for the next story we're going to walk right into. But just as a reminder of what he means by this is like, the disciples are supposed to fit into this kind of a family structure that's that part of the kingdom of heaven. So followers of Jesus are not the authority. They're not the ones who are king. Jesus is king. The followers of Jesus, they are dependent like kids because Jesus is the provider. And like kids, they are also completely valuable, not because of what they contribute, but for the value that's put on them by the Father, by Jesus. Jesus loves unconditionally. And, and so the reason Jesus is bringing this right back home to them is because the way they are acting towards literal kids isn't ma- matching up with how they are supposed to be living in this metaphor of being like children, being humbly dependent upon who Jesus is and what he's done for them. So now this sets the stage to be able to walk through this next story about the rich young man or the rich young ruler. So I'm just going to read through this next part and then we'll walk through it. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life... Keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, the beginning of this story, we have a, a rich, young ruler. Now, I use those descriptions of this man because if you look at Mark 10, 17 through 30, or Luke 18, 18 through 30, we know three things about this man. One is his, he's young. That's in our passage here. It's also in Mark. He's a ruler. That comes from Luke. And he's very wealthy. All three accounts uh, are in sharing of that. that he, he's not just like, yeah, he's well off. No, he's, he's very wealthy. So everything that a child would seem to lack, he seems to have. A child lacks authority. Their parents are the authority, right? A child lacks authority. This man is a ruler. I and mean, we're not given a description of what he's ruling. We know that because of his familiarity with the law, he's probably Jewish. Maybe he's a, a local ruler in one of the towns. A child lacks wealth because their parents, a child's parents, owns all the wealth of the family. And yet this man is very wealthy on his own. A child seemingly lacks value to society. Young, young kids aren't able to put in the work that a young man is able to put in either for a family or for society. And so this man, he's young, which means he's able, he's rich, he's got the means, and he's, he's got that authority. To the world, he is very valuable. But to diagnose this man's condition, why he's even running up to Jesus like he is, we have to follow this story like a counseling session. As he comes to Jesus, like Jesus is this masterful counselor. He's a heart surgeon who cares more than just giving like a simple answer to this guy and sending him on his way. He cares about his heart. So as we walk through the story, we're looking at uh, the question this man has, the burden that he has, and then the solution he is given by Jesus. So he comes with a question. So if we look at verse 16, it says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, if you've ever had experience either in a counseling world or just having a heart-to-heart -heart long conversation with someone, often when you start a conversation and someone has a question, that question isn't the real question. It's actually something that's just coming out of all the things that are going on inside of them. They may not even know what they need. They think they know what they need. And they ask a question. Often those questions are the things that is, is like a window into their soul of what they really need. So let's just even look at the question of what, of what he's asking. First of all, he says, what good deed? So he believes there's a good deed that he hasn't done, that there is something that he's missing, something he hasn't accomplished. And underneath this is like that desire that his value is going to come from whatever deed that he needs to do. I am only valuable based on the amount of good that I must do. And, and maybe that extends to the point of like, God is only going to be satisfied if I'm able to do a certain good thing. 
And that leads us to the, the next part. He's not only asking about a good deed, but he says a good deed that I must do. There is something that he can accomplish by his own power, by his own will. However, Jesus answers, the man believes he has the means to accomplish whatever the task is, whatever that good deed is. Unlike a child, this man depends on his own authority. And then the last part, to gain eternal life. So this is like what he sees as the, the goal, the prize that the man would provide for himself. Like if I do the, the right things and I'm the one who's doing it, then I'm going to get this in return. And this doesn't seem bad in and of itself, but as, as you ask that question, it's interesting like just how eternal life seems to be in this bucket that it shouldn't belong. Like that the end all goal is that you live forever. But a life lived forever doesn't really mean much unless there's actually substance to that life. It's like putting eternal life in the position that God should be in. And it's also putting eternal life as something that he's owed by God. Like if I do this deed by my own strength, then God owes me eternal life. So unlike a child, this man is dependent on everything that he is and owns to make his way in life, but he's still coming up empty. If you look at the Mark account in Mark 10, it describes this man running to Jesus and falling on his knees. Like, I don't think he's trying to come up, as we look at this story, there's more going on than just trying to prove something. Like, he's trying to prove, like, oh, look how good I am. And, and he's not like the Pharisees who are trying to test Jesus. He's coming in with this genuine question because he's got a vacant soul, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. I think he started to look inside of himself, and he's coming up empty. He's been living a good life. We see that morally, this guy is probably living a life that's morally better than, than any of us, at least on the surface. It seems like he could have everything that he wants. He's not only rich, he has good morals. He does the right thing. And yet there's still this nagging doubt in his soul, wondering what the... What the heck is going on because life seems meaningless? He tries and he tries, but something's not right. So like a good heart surgeon, like an excellent counselor, Jesus doesn't go immediately to, to an answer and send him on his way. He begins peeling back layers to help this man to see what is broken, what's wrong with his heart, with his soul. So here's, that's his question, but now we're going to see his burden. So Jesus starts off, the first, as he begins pulling back the layers, he then says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus is building a case through this conversation to show the man is attempting to do something that is impossible for men to accomplish by their own authority and by their own willpower. By starting off with recognizing that there's only one who is good, Jesus is pointing to the exact place where this man can find his answer. And it's in a relationship, a relationship with God. But the man needs more heart surgery is shown by his follow-up question. He, he asks, well, which ones? 
Which, which commandments should I do? He's hunting for a solution. So by just even looking at his later responses, if this man knows the Ten Commandments, he's hoping that Jesus can give him something specific that would reveal the, the, the problem, that, that somehow Jesus would say that one commandment, maybe that'd just be like this light bulb that would come on, and all of a sudden, okay, that's the thing I need to fix. That's the good, need, good deed that I need to, to do. So then Jesus begins to list commands. And if you're a good Bible student or you can get past basic arithmetic and you start counting the commandments that Jesus is listing, you're like, wait a minute, he doesn't list the Ten Commandments. In fact, it seems like he misses the whole first half of the Ten Commandments. So what's going on here? What is Jesus doing? In fact, you can see it at the very end of his list because he includes something that's not specifically listed, which is in verse 19, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The reason he says that is because the Ten Commandments or the whole law can be summed up in two ways, or with with two sayings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So it's almost like there's these two buckets, your relationship with God and what that looks like, and your relationship with others. So, So Jesus is intentionally looking at that relationship with others and totally leaving out the very thing that this man is missing, which is his relationship with God and what that looks like. And so the man, and I love this, this dude is like listening to Jesus in verse 20. It says, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Doesn't this express the vacancy of the soul? Like, like up here, it's like there should be this formula. As long as I hit all the right buttons with God, then, then somehow life should find meaning and I should be able to get it. And yet, he's, from his perspective, he seems like I'm doing everything right. Why am I not satisfied? D.A. Carson is an is a, is a excellent Bible scholar, and he put it well. He said, he enjoyed wealth while suffering barrenness of the soul. And this is the burden this man is struggling with. And I, and I think it doesn't take very much to see how the burden this guy is struggling with is the same burden that we often struggle with. I mean, this is why many people are leaving the church more and more in America because it's easy to grow up with this very shallow understanding of our relationship with God. Like, do what's right. Go to church, just be a nice person, listen to pastors regardless of whether they're preaching the truth or not. If your life is built on a shallow understanding of God, it will show itself when life begins to weigh on you, when it feels like the weight of the world is crushing down on you. And I think many of us get to that point of asking, what do I still lack? I mean... When it feels like you have done so much of the right thing, you, you, you've hit the right buttons, you've done it, and yet it, it's still not matching up. You still feel like you're lacking. It's, you feel like, man, I tried Jesus. I tried church. I tried reading my Bible. I tried prayer. What do I still lack? I helped some people out. I served on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon if you come to church at 4 p.m. What do I still lack? Or maybe sometimes we can have this little bit of prosperity gospel seep into how we view Jesus. It can be like, man, I've got a car, I've got a family, I've got an income, what do I still lack? 
Or maybe you, you, you grew up with the right values, right? I have a Christian family. My mom and dad love Jesus. What do I still lack? And what the man lacked, and often what, what we can lack, is that first half of the Ten Commandments. He lacked a real relationship with God where God is truly God, and the young man is a humble, dependent worshiper. So with, without this, the man is holding up life on his own. And he's beginning to find out that he doesn't have enough. His, his wealth isn't able to hold things up. His, his morals on his, like, aren't able to hold it up. <laughs> and he's feeling this crumbling in his soul. And, and the reality there is that you and I are not enough to live life like we're a god. We can't hold the world on our shoulders. And this is why so many wealthy people become depressed because money, power, wealth, fame, authority that is dependent on us creates a burden for our soul rather than giving us freedom. And we're left asking, what do I lack? So what's the solution? So Jesus gives them a solution. So if we look at Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. You go sell all that you possess, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. And before we dive into this, just look at the verse that follows. We see the young man's reaction in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Are we the rich man or are we the child? What's going on here? The solution offered to the rich man is the solution that is offered to us. It is the true and genuine gospel. And when you read this at first, it's, I think many of us would have the same reaction as the disciples do. Like in verse 25 and 26, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So, so backing up to what Jesus says, I, I've looked at this story a lot. <laughs> and it, what Jesus says, often like the first thing that comes into my mind is like, well, I don't think he means I should go and sell my house right now. Right? Like, like that, that's how we can react. Or like if I sell my house, let's say I did that. And I got a check back. I'm like, okay, would I take that check, walk to the rescue mission, hand it over to them and say, all right, here you go. And then that turns into treasure in heaven and somehow I've done it. But that, doesn't that seem kind of odd with what Jesus has already said? I mean, the, this guy has already asked, like, what good deed must I do? So let's, let's start wrestling with this a little bit. And this is the thing I want to encourage you with is, as, as you look at this passage is when we start going on the defensive, when we feel uncomfortable, we're often missing the point that Jesus is getting at. 
And you have to ask yourself, why would I go on the defense of like, oh, Jesus, don't touch my house. Like, I need a place for my kids to have like a roof over their head, right? Why are we trying to excuse the hard thing? And instead of negating this passage, what if we put ourselves in the feet of this rich man and ask ourselves, if I was in that guy's position, would I do what Jesus asked? Would I go sell my possessions, give to the poor, go follow him? But, not, but, but notice, especially as you look through all of Matthew, what Jesus is doing here. He's asking this man, hey, if you give all that's of the world, all the things that you've put your worth into, and you give that up to become one of my disciples, it's worth everything. It is worth all your possessions. It is worth everything to come and follow me, to put me as the highest priority in your life. Because Jesus isn't just going after rich men. There are plenty of rich men in the Bible who have possessions and all that goes with it. But when he's saying this, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we come and follow him, we're saying, everything that I have is in your possession, God. There, there, there's no like thing that you can hold back because once you get the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, you realize without Jesus, your life is vacant. Without Jesus, you can have it all. You can have the high income. You can have everything. And, and even if you aren't wealthy, if, you're, if you are poor of itself, you can live like a rich man because you think, if only I had all these things. If only I had all this wealth. If only I had the bills paid for and all this. It does the exact same thing where you've put wealth in this position that only God can be in. And God is saying, like, allow me to be king over every nook and cranny and piece of your life because I'm, I'm going to use it for the right thing if you put it in my hands. And to go another layer deeper with what Jesus is saying is response is we have to see that, first of all, Jesus is asking the rich young ruler to follow him in what he's about to do as the richest young ruler to ever come to earth. And I'm, gonna, I'm borrowing from an illustration I believe I got from Tim Keller. Um, I only say that because I can't remember if this is an exact quote or not. So if you find this idea somewhere else down the line that isn't Tim Keller, please let me know. <laughs> Jesus has the greatest riches. <laughs> he is one with God, the creator of the universe. Just read the Psalms and see how it describes the wealth that he has, that Jesus is the greatest authority and he's actually morally perfect. Everything that the, the rich young ruler thought he was, Jesus actually was. And what did Jesus do? He set aside those things in order to become sin in our place, to take the wrath of God that we deserve. We are the poor ones. So if, if Jesus is, is wealthy and rich and he, he set those, those aside, coming in as a, as a human being, born as a, as a baby, who, who, is he, who is he allowing to become wealthy out of what he did? It's, it's us, that we're the poor ones that Jesus is giving all the goodness and riches that we don't deserve, that he gives us forgiveness for sins. He followed 
the will of God. After his resurrection, he ascended or was exalted to the very place he had left. And by faith in what he accomplished, the very task that is impossible for us to do on our own, which is that have a relationship with God for all of eternity, we can now have because of the life that Jesus was able to open up for us. And so when, when Jesus calls us to give up everything, give to the poor and follow him, what he's asking us to do is, is what he went and did. So like a child, we give all that we have to Jesus. Re, re, that, that, what that means is we, re, we have to repent of living like a rich man apart from God on our own, where we think we live life on our own terms, by our own authority, that we're the boss, and we have to say, guess what? I tried that, and it destroyed me. Like it's impossible for, for us to live this life the way it's meant to be lived apart from Jesus. And ultimately, when we reject God and we live by our own power and authority, our will will be done in the sense that there's eternal punishment for those who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ. But, but when we repent, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we put our faith in Jesus who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the life that we should have died. If you keep everything for yourself, your goals, and you create your own kingdom, it just creates a void in your heart. And so Jesus is saying, just give that all to me. And like a child then, give to those who are poor, like you were. Like as I started looking at this from the lens of what Jesus came to do on his road to the cross, you start realizing that like poor extends out to so much more. If we are poor when we're separated from God, then our heart towards literal poor but also spiritually poor changes to where we leverage our life to the mission that Jesus gave us that we see at the end of Matthew when he says, go and make disciples. When we look at the beginning of Acts and he says, start here in Jerusalem and go out and bring the message of the gospel. Like we use everything that we have for that mission. It's no longer our possession. So in one sense, whether you have a house, whether you have a car, whether you got money in a bank account, or you don't, or you don't have, the, whatever you have is for him and to be leveraged for him. As soon as we begin clinging to that, like the rich young ruler does, the things that we have in this life aren't going to be used for the right purposes. And that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy what you have or enjoy life or do those things, but without that mission of saying, God just gave me everything through faith in him, I need to then turn around and leverage my life to see others come to know him. And like a child, you can't do this on your own. Like, if you try to do this by your own power, much like the question the rich young ruler asked, where he's like, what good, good deed must I do? If, you, if we go that direction where it's like, okay, uh, by my own strength, by my own power, I'm going to try and give up everything and live life following him, it's like you're going to miss it. That's the whole reason for the last part of what Jesus tells him to do, is like, come, follow me. It has to be a work of God in our hearts. We have to... <laughs> The, the one thing I would say that this rich young ruler does that's amazing is we have to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, not just physically on our knees, but spiritually, and this is the part he missed, 
is spiritually on our knees, coming, realizing that, with, that we're hopeless on our own and that we need Jesus. It's sometimes easy also to take this story and think that it only applies in, in that initial part when our relationship with Jesus is formed, when we first put our faith in Jesus, to think, okay, sweet, so as long as I have my faith in Jesus, I'm on the right road, and I can, can move on in Matthew or something like that. But I was also struck by how easy it is as a follower of Jesus, especially as we grow older and we start hunting for security in this life, that we can easily drop our gaze from Jesus and we can get consumed by other things. And I just want to share even this week how I saw this to begin applying in my heart where I realized I got to a moment where I was like, almost like the rich young ruler asking, what do I still lack, God? Like almost what haven't I done? So I, I went to a conference this week with um, uh, a part of a church planning network. We're a part of Acts 29. And we met in this Honestly, about the best church building I've ever been a part of. Like, yeah, I won't go into the details. I was just, it was, it was overwhelming in many ways where you're like, wow, this is incredible. And, it, and part of sometimes an American church culture is you begin to like, to look at that and be like, dang, if, if I'm not able to do something like this, like these people affect so many people and are able to reach out into this community in a powerful way and like you get these lies stuck in your head as you're sitting in this environment. So I was talking to my wife about that, this and she said, sounds like you were jealous or envious of their building and I was like, no, nah, no, nah, it couldn't be that. Like, no, I don't think it's that. And then you had to like, you know, get to that spot where it's like, okay, there, yes, there is more to it but, the, but envy and jealousy were almost like the symptoms of me acting like a rich man rather than acting like a child who is content with Jesus and what he's given. So it was this one-day conference, and God started working on my heart, like exposing a lot of things. And I was having even trouble just singing with the worship music as you've got this like power band playing and the acoustics are just perfect. And you're just like, God, how can I get to this place where I'm not thinking about these other things, but I'm actually worshiping you? And it's like God was like, because i got to do work in your heart. So he starts working on me, and I get to the last session, so the last worship session. I begin to, to sing, and when one of the songs was about God and his creation, uh, about how he created the stars, the sun, and the moon, and he just hit me hard where he's like, your church family, Radiant Church, is a beautiful creation that I've made. And you know, it just hit me because it's like, man, how easy when you get your eyes blinded by the world that you miss all the valuable things that God is doing. It isn't about the size church, how many people are coming or what's going on. It's about whether we're living out the heart of this word together as a family. And that's what I love. I love about you guys. That's what I love about coming in on a Sunday afternoon and being able to have real conversations with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a beautiful thing that God is doing. Our family, our church is beautiful. And God has used this church to make a difference in this community. And so then as just kind of this last zinger that God does is he was doing heart surgery for me. The pastor of that church comes up and he gives he gives the last talk and it was not the thing I expected is he came up 
and he just shared a story about how he became pastor of this church in his 20s, and he inherited this building. He said it was the worst thing that could ever have happened to him because it became, it became about the riches. It, it became where this, this thing where he, basically it was easy to look at himself as kind of like this pastor superstar and part of this building, and what God had to do was to lovingly crush him at one point to show, no, this isn't about you. This church, this building, all the resources are, are about me. And, and so in tears, he's like sharing with us this story and the truths of scriptures to encourage us and challenge us in our role as a pastors and, and where I was judging this man because of the building and everything around it, God used him to humble me and to show me like how beautiful he is and how worth it it is to live like a child humbly dependent on Jesus. With whatever you're given, whatever position in your life, whatever status you may be, when you're living life where it's all about him and for him, that's where you'll find salvation. And just like, like the disciples who are watching this man, I, I feel like I resonate with them, where you're like looking at this dude who's a rich young ruler who seems to have his life put together, and then Jesus sends him away, and then the disciples are watching this like, who then can be saved? Who, who can make it? And God says, or, and, yeah, God, and God says, Jesus says, but with God, what is, that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When we hold on to our riches, the reason that Jesus gives such a stark warning is because it's like, if you can imagine like someone who's piled up treasure in a sinking boat and they're willing to sit in that boat until it goes all the way to the bottom of the sea because they can't let go of their riches. That's what happens. And it's not just riches in the money sense. It's whatever we count as riches that are above God. When we begin to wrap our arms around it, it's gonna drag us down. And when he uses that metaphor... It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle just in case you grew up with, with the wrong teaching that I did. It's not talking about a little gate that's in the side of the wall. It's talking about a literal needle, the eye of a needle. If you don't sew it all, it's just when you see the needle and it's got that little circle, it's saying just as impossible it is for like a camel to get through an eye, so it is for a rich man. Because why? Because they're dependent upon their wealth because it's so hard to let go of. And in order for them to let go of, it's got to be a work of God in their heart to be able to let go of their life and to live life on his terms. And so then it brings us to the conclusion, the benefit of living like a child. In verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, have, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I love that this is the way the passage ends. And that it ends with a sweetness, a comfort. And, and, and I think, again, that, that Peter's asking a genuine question. Like, we've left everything. We followed you. So what then will we have? And, and what Jesus tells him is, first of all, you'll have true authority. Like, 
He gives the disciples a, a picture, a sneak peek into the future, that the disciples will have authority when the kingdom is renewed. And specifically, he says that you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice the true authority. It isn't that they've somehow been put into the place of God. They are ruling and using authority underneath God's authority. Because he says, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And then he will say, you will have true family. It says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold. And you can begin to see this in this life now when you put your faith in Jesus and you begin to interact and have relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Like you start seeing the family and the way it's created to be and, and the things that may have been taken away are then filled in by the glorious good news of Jesus and what he's done for you. And when you think about, too, that the people that you share the gospel with who come to know Jesus Christ, you will be with them in eternity. And then you will have true life and wealth. All that you've ever needed for all time will be ours at the renewal of the kingdom. There will be no want. There will be no more death. There will be no, all the things that have been part of the, the corruptness of this world because of sin are promised to be us. And all this is possible because the Son of Man is on the throne. The only true, good, and just King. And all the relationships, all the possessions of the renewed world will be tied to what? His name's sake. Our relationship to the King. And so it can be hard as we walk through this life. We give up everything to follow Jesus. And we can be like the disciples wondering like, man, this is hard. This is difficult. And what Jesus gives them a picture of is just trust in me and the future that I promise for you in me. So as we close today, we close every Sunday by having communion for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ because it reminds us again of that sweet gospel message that, 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 that Jesus humbled himself, that he came to the cross, his body was broken, his blood was shed for us so that we could receive the wealth of salvation in him. And so I want to encourage you as you take, before you take communion, just to take some time, sit with the Father in prayer, and maybe like me this week, you've run into situations where you've gotten your eyes distracted off of Jesus. You've been clinging to things and putting things in place above God that that's not how life should be. And maybe you need to repent and say, God, I need you, you are worth everything in my life to follow. And maybe be praying and thinking over who, who are the poor in your life that you need to reach out to, that God has equipped you and given you possessions, given you family, given you things so that you can use it to advance his kingdom forward. Is there someone that God has put on your heart that you need to be praying for, that you need to be sharing the gospel with? And then... I encourage you, take confidence that faith 
in Jesus does have a reward in a relationship with him. That the sufferings of this earth, what we walk through here, the brokenness will one, be, one day be no more at his return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Jesus, I thank you for stories like this. I thank you for stories of this man, this rich, young ruler, God, who came with a question. And God, what I pray for us today is as we come with our questions, as we come with our burdens, that we don't leave holding on to them sorrowful like this man, but that we come to the foot of the cross. We come to the place where, Jesus, you took all our burdens upon you. You took the wrath of God upon yourself. And I pray that, that, that here as, as we gather, God, that we leave our burdens at your feet and instead we, that we shoulder the burden you promise us, um, one that, that, that is light. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you did for us. And it's your name we pray. Amen.